Yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you take a little bit more of that. Deet, 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 which I love. Well, yours was very smooth, very. It was almost, uh, dare I say it, adult contemporary. A little uh, pillow talk. 100.3 WNIC. We have mentioned Alan Aldman on the podcast before. Um, I think it was back. I know we were talking about Benny Mardones. I don't remember the exact episode. I think it was a, a round and round. But uh, yeah, 100.3 WNIC for all you Detroiters out there. Um, you know, the old easy listening station at night would have Alan Aldman's pillow talk where he would say very creepy, weird romantically intended things you know like are you feeling lonely tonight starlight star bright here's breathe doing hands to heaven you know or (laughs) (laughs) are you wishing you had someone with their arms wrapped around you tonight here's it's all coming back to me by celine dion (laughs) yeah exactly Something like that, just to just to get you in the right mood. It was it was great and kind of scary all at the same time. The Pillow Talk Show. Alan would hate the album that we're looking at on episode forty four, and the reason <laughs> why is because Alan's show is all about um, you know the value of the physical act of love, right? I mean, he loved nothing <laughs> more than to provide the soundtrack. For people on a you know on a Thursday night in Metro Detroit, yeah, he loved helping others bang, didn't he? He, he, he did. He did. Yeah. He took great joy out of that. Whereas Weezer's Pinkerton is an album that basically says, "I I, I don't want to do this anymore." You know, it's it, the lyrical content of this is very counter to what Alan was trying to say. Alan was trying to tell us all to go out and and to have ourselves a a good time and yeah, fro- frolic around a little bit, right? Yeah. And Rivers is basically saying, I- I've done a lot of frolicking and I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, don't, I don't think Alan would dig episode 44, but we hope all of you do. And it's, it's good to uh, resume here T with the old, uh, as you say, the old podcast here. Yes, it is. We're going to talk about second album. It's, it's called second album, right? <laughs> and second album has a lot of different stories, a lot of different narratives in, the, in music history, especially in rock music. History. There are some second albums that took artists that maybe were finding their way on the debut effort and skyrocketed them. And then there's second albums that took what would become the pinnacle of a band or an artist, which is that premiere, and just completely destroy it and act as the beginning of the end. And this album falls somewhere within that spectrum, but it's certainly not either one of those extremes, which makes it interesting. T, remember back to episode one? Remind our audience, what, what album did we do for episode one? It was one of your episodes. What did we do? Uh, that would have been In Utero. Do you remember the question that you posed at the beginning of the episode? 
I believe it was something to do with, uh, was Kurt Cobain a genius or just a, a whiny little annoying, uh, person? The word you used was bitch. Oh, a whiny, whiny bitch. Okay, a whiny yeah. bitch. Yeah. It, you're, you're dead on. It was, that sounds better. Yeah. It was Kurt Cobain. Is he a musical genius or a whiny little bitch? We might be able to ask that question again here in episode 44. But before we ask questions, hmm. let's get some answers in terms of what we have been listening to of late as we take episode 44 round and round. three albums that are suiting your musical fancy what do you got well thank you buddy i've got actually a couple of new things here um that i've yet to fully dig into but royal blood has a new album out just a fantastic band we uh we saw them a couple years ago open for queens of the stone age and while i love queens of the stone age and i love josh and i love john theodore as we've uh discussed previously um royal blood may have been better that night uh, they were just amazing so uh they have a new album called typhoon and i'm really excited about it. it's been a few years for those guys another favorite band of the last decade for me is manchester orchestra they have a new record out called the million masks of god their last couple records meh meh eh, not great not too good but uh obviously their early work simple math was unbelievable in fact album of the year for me in 2011 um so i'm hoping they rebound a little bit here they've gotten a little too kind of folky and hipstery but i'm hoping they just get back to you know the good stuff and uh, the third i think you'll appreciate this one buddy because i think you've actually mentioned it before is getting into a little demons and wizards by the great Uriah Heep. Speaking uh, my language now, buddy. Oh, God. What a record. So that's what's round and round for me. How about for you, New Blaze? I, so back to Royal Blood, and I, I agree. I thought they were I thought they were the better band that night. No doubt about it. And that was that was kind of a crappy Queens album that they were touring. Do you like the, the Royal Blood single? Have you, have you heard it yet? I'm not even sure. I, I think I have, but I need to, I need to dig in. It's a little festival rocky. Now I like it. It's cool, but mm. it does have this like danceable beat to it, you know. Whereas the first Royal Blood album was really raw and open, and so I don't know, man. I, ho- I hope they don't go festival rock. All right, well, uh, very good. Round and round for me. T begins with the 2005 album "Mighty Rearranger" from Robert Plant. Uh, this incarnation, I think, was called Robert Plant in the. Oh, what was it? He he said, you know, he he renames his band every single time. You found a Robert Plant solo record that you like? Oh, come on. Come on. This, that's unfair. This was the uh, strange sensation was that that's what he called this particular band. You like his solo stuff? Like for real? Actually, not, not a ton. I, I, the early, okay. like late eighties, early nineties. Well, then why did you just chastise me for bringing up the fact that perhaps Robert Plant's solo stuff has uh, sucked ass? Well, I think starting in the mid nineties, like fate of nations, I thought was excellent. You know, he kind of got back to that heavier sound. Well, yeah, but that was 30 years ago. So <laughs> yeah, but the first, <laughs> yeah. so I will tell you this, like 
early on, like now and Zen and um, those albums, like what was that tall, cool one? And I mean, terrible stuff, mm-hmm. but yeah. in the mid nineties, I do feel like he hit a little bit of a stride and there was some really good stuff in the two thousands. His last couple have okay. actually been really good. Okay. So I, I would say that, you know, much better with age. Yeah, for, for sure. And Mighty Ray Ranger is is a great record. This is where he's getting back to heavier guitars and, and, you know, still doing kind of the tribal beat thing, but really good album. Very overlooked. I think it should got more attention at its time. But uh, Mighty Ray Ranger is something I dug into a bit during the last week. Secondly, would be the album What a Feeling by Irene Cara. Oh, the full the full LP, the full LP. How's the rest of it? Very good. It did Georgia Marauders all over it. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be nice. too bad. Right. Absolutely. But I, and I love the title track. I, you know, I think it's, Oh yeah. I mean, what a song right from the eighties, yeah. but yeah, the rest, the rest of the album's really good. What a song, what a feeling. I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that, it, that it gives you. Yeah. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And third would be, I, I've been digging through some more yes related solo stuff. And this would be uh, an album called, Levin Torn White. So this is Alan White, the drummer from Yes, with guitarist David Torn and uh, bassist Tony Levin, who's one of the best, best bassists in the world. This came out in 2011. It's a cool mix. It's kind of a fusion-y, proggy, jazzy sort of deal with three really fantastic musicians sort of getting together and doing their thing. So Yeah, I think if you're even going to be within the Yes family, like within the Yes ballpark, you got to have uh, some good bass guitar. No doubt about it, right? The late, great Chris Squire. Oh, love that guy. Absolutely. It can't be overstated how huge this band was going into this second album. I mean, they were absolutely one of the biggest bands in the world. and They were not prepared for what this was going to look like in terms of stardom and notoriety and Pinkerton is sort of the result of that. But when you think back to Blue Album, before we get into the second album, it really can't be stated enough how huge this record was. But did you like it? I mean, were you a Weezer guy at that time? I know we'll get into it a bit in the Wonder Stories. So I had this move where I would listen to from My Name is Jonas. I don't know the exact track listing in my head. Up through um, Surf Wax America, I think. And then I would turn it off. I didn't even really get that into say it ain't so until much later because I was kind of a side A kind of guy on the blue album, you know, when I back then. So I've since learned to appreciate the back half a bit. I mean, I think it's a good record. I think it's a classic, right? But yeah, I was, you know, I was pretty into it, but I, I, I remember it distinctly for it being one where I would listen to the first uh, five, I think, tracks and then kind of call it a day. Um, after that, it started to get kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of everything sounding similar to me, which is maybe why they went in a Pinkerton direction. But um, yeah, that's what I remember the Blue Album for. Were you were you into it? Yeah, but sort of tempered. You know, it was, it was you could not be into it and be sort of a high school you know, kid at that time. But same idea, you know, it was, I've always been, you know, you can add this to the the list of bands, U2 and Bob Dylan and some of the things that I'm really picky about. Uh, you can certainly add Weezer to that list. And the Blue Album is no different. You know, I thought there were moments on it that were really memorable. And then there are moments on it that I can't remember. And it's probably a good thing I can't. So, you know, it, but it certainly is part of the story when you look at Pinkerton. And, and uh, why don't we go ahead and dive into 
the story. We kind of tickled everybody with a little wonder stories feather there, T. So well done on that. But uh, before we get into that, let's look into some of the nerdy deeds done dirt cheap about Weezer's Pinkerton. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right. So as mentioned, Pinkerton is the second album from Weezer. It was released on September 24th, 1996. So T, we were 16 years old, came out on DGC records. So we're talking about major label here, right? I mean, this is not some indie thing. And uh, of course, it was produced by Weezer. So they had found a way to uh, very early on in their career have a lot of creative control. I think what stands out about the album is its length. It's only about 34 minutes long. It's very, very short. And the songs are really tight and short. And the album is pretty tight. And short. The, the cover art stands out just for being very bleak. You know, you go from this bright blue album with these four sort of dudes just being dudes, which just, I do love in the blue album, the way they're just kind of standing there. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. It was very Weezer, you know, it was sort of that self deprecating, sort of we're just, you know, normal guys thing. But Pinkerton took on this, this whole different thing, a lot of darker colors and, and less vibrant. And, you know, right from the second you, saw it at the record shop, you, you know, it was easy to think, oh, this is going to be very different. There were three singles. El Scorcho was the lead single. It came out about a week before the album came out. The Good Life and Pink Triangle, none of which were really hits at all. And I'm not sure any of them were intended to be hits. When you listen to Pickerton, you can hear, even from a production standpoint, this is much less produced for radio and things like that. It it's got a, it does have a much more indie type of sound to it. Although on those singles, you, you hear a little bit maybe heavier mastering and things like that that might have been preparing them for radio or TV. Weezer, at this time, it is the last album with one of the band's true secret weapons, and it's been proven by what he's done since, which is bassist Matt Sharp, uh, was only there for the Blue Album and Pickerton. And when he left, I think a lot left. In terms of Weezer's makeup, but the rest of the crew, of course, Rivers, Cuomo, guitar, vocals, keyboards, Brian Bell on guitar and vocals, the before mentioned Matt Sharp on bass and background vocals, and Patrick Wilson on the drums. One of my favorite just looking drummers of the 90s. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, speaking of longevity, I mean, another project that's still around and still really, really good is the rentals, you know, and Matt Sharp obviously formed the rentals, I believe as a side project while he was still with Weezer. Um, maybe it happened after, I don't remember the exact cadence there, um, but the rentals have put out records. They have continued and it's, Really good stuff. And if you listen back, I mean, obviously most people know them as uh, for their for their smash single Friends of P, right? But they were doing a lot of cool stuff with uh, synth and with keyboard layering and things that weren't being done still a ton at that time. That was really kind of innovative. I agree with you. I think that Sharp brought a lot of the um, sort of forward thinking to Weezer, you know, getting away from just pop hooks or in the case of Pinkerton, just sort of a, a more stripped down, I guess, emo statement, because this became the, you know, the uh, pioneering of emo in many people's eyes. But yeah, I think that Sharp, what you've seen him do with the rentals over time, uh, if, and then obviously where you saw the direction of the band go, I mean, it's about Rivers. There's no question. He's the composer. He's the guy. But I think Sharp brought more to this band than people realized. To conclude the nerdy deeds, you have to look at the critical reviews of Pinkerton and make no mistake. And this is a great example of 
hindsight. And one of, one of the most annoying things in music to you is what, what's called the retrospective review. And it, Rolling Stone is famous for this. And we've, you know, certainly uttered our disdain for Rolling Stone magazine a number of times on the podcast, understandably. One of the things they do that's just so ridiculous is they do these retrospective reviews where they basically go back and look at something that they maybe didn't praise, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. And then they do this like glowing, gushing review of it uh, in modern day, almost to like do a makeup call or something like that for whatever they may, may have gotten wrong before. Well, yeah. this is yeah. why you should not listen to Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> It's a little bit like, you know, going back to a historical event 10 years later and saying, no, this is actually what happened. Well, okay, fine. But maybe you should have got it right the first time. You know, Pinkerton is one of those albums, certainly that required a little bit more time because it wasn't like what came before it. And those who were expecting that were probably immediately disappointed. But instead of being patient and waiting their time, everybody just rushed out reviews and the reviews were really crappy. Rolling Stone in their retrospective review gave it five stars, but at the time they gave it three and they really said it wasn't very good. Spin gave it seven of 10, even Pitchfork gave it 7.5 out of 10. A lot of other publications just gave it eh, kind of ho-hum reviews. So now everyone slobbers over Pinkerton. But back then that was not happening. This was a very poorly reviewed second album. And so on one hand, you think, well, you know, give it time. And in retrospect, Things will change, which I get. On the other hand, you know, just kind of give it some time to begin with and, and maybe wait to pass judgment on an album. You know, let, let's not just jump and say it's this or it's that. And so this mixed review thing, T, really reflects the overall idea behind Pinkerton, right? Even as we get into the track by track, you're going to hear some things that it's like, oh, yeah, that really is good. And then you're going to hear some things that are like, huh? Like that's Weezer. And I think that was kind of the point, but T, do you remember when Pickerton came out, like your initial uh, kind of thoughts on it? Were they positive? Were they negative? Did you not care? You know, I, I had kind of become disinterested in Weezer by the time this came out. You know, I, I, I know that I listened to it um, and it certainly sounded different, but I don't know what came out. I mean, I know at this point I was really getting into failure. And I was really getting into, um, you know, things that had a little bit more of that sort of edge to them. I was really getting into tool typo negative, you know, this typo rust time. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I really haven't been that huge of a Weezer fan since. So, yeah, by this point, I, I don't really remember having a strong opinion on Pinkerton, which is part of what's made it really fun to kind of revisit. Um, but yeah, by, even in 1996, by the time this came out, I had already kind of moved on to other things. Well, now that we've teased everybody nicely with uh, a couple ideas for the Wonder Stories tea, now I'm really looking forward to the rest of it. Let's get into the Wonder Stories. T, tell us about your Weezer experience. Well, I mean... I. I think I came to know Weezer the same way every other 90s kid did, which is through, if you want to destroy my sweater. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
I mean, it was like, that was a song like you had never really heard before. I remember hearing people singing it like in the hallways and it was like, what the hell is that? I mean, is that, that's like, is that like actually a song, you know? And then you heard it and you're like, okay, yeah, that's pretty infectious. And, and then you hear my name is Jonas, which is a great song. We actually play that in our uh, acoustic sets. And then you hear Buddy Holly and then you see the video, the happy days thing. And I mean, it's like they, they came on really hard and, uh, and they were huge. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a really storybook nineties debut situation where they were able to capture uh, fans in a lot of different groups. You know, I mean, the, the grunge kids loved them because they were minimalist and nerdy and the, the mainstream loved them because you know, they were fun and, and, uh, the, the, the more fratty crowd loved them because they were catchy and upbeat and, you know, so it was, a I I don't know what the intention, we clearly know the intention of Pinkerton, but they didn't, but the intention of the blue album certainly on its face seemed to be, um, you know, really trying to reach a wide audience and really trying to be an MTV darling and a radio darling. And they sure were, and they deserved it. You know, they're great songs and they were done in a very simple, straightforward way to your point about the blue album cover. It's just the guys just standing there hanging out. You know, the whole thing was unique and, and cool at that time. There's no question about it. So, you know, kind of a standard way of getting into them. As I mentioned, I'd kind of checked out a little bit by this time. And I've dabbled in Weezer ever since. But one of the things that was interesting that I always remember when I think of Weezer, I'm sure, I'm sure Weezer wouldn't, wouldn't want me to think of this, but I actually think of another band because I went and saw Weezer on the Red Album Tour. So this was like the Pork and Beans record. And, uh, and they were fine. They were good. They came out. It was an arena setting, which was an interesting place to see them. But the opening group was a group called Angels and Airwaves. And Tom DeLong came out with the original Ava lineup and they were just an incredible. I mean, and, and it was, they were opening, but they had their light show and they had their whole theatrical thing going on. And I was like, what is this? Like, like I want more of this. <laughs> this, is, this is did you know fantastic. at the time it was a guy from blink or did you like, or did you find that out during the show or? Yeah, I knew it was his band, but I didn't, and I sort of knew the adventure, but I didn't know anything else, you know, as far as their style or their approach or their performance or their theatrics and everyone. Or their after, digital delay pedals. Yeah, exactly. And everyone uh, thereafter, like wanted to talk about the Weezer show. I was like, yeah, but what about that band that played before? Like, you know, they, they were amazing. And, and that really was the beginning of getting me into what has become one of my favorite bands, you know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the deal with me and Weezer. I'm really disappointed in what they've done the last, uh, you know, at least five or so records. I think they've been pretty crappy, you know, and, uh, you know, trying, it's almost like a Maroon 5 type thing, like just trying so hard to, uh, kind of go where the wind is blowing rather than really make bold artistic statements and whether you like Pinkerton or not, and I guess we'll get to that. Um, it was a bold artistic statement and it was, uh, artistically brave of them to come out. And instead of just going with the formula that got them there, they wanted to do something different and do something more raw. And whether you like this deal or not, you know, on the deal here, that's the one thing 
that needs to be appreciated and respected about this. So that is my Weezer saga. How about yourself, Nub? So I'll ask you a quick question. You got to put your hands up because you always accuse me of cheating on these, which of course I never do. So hand check. Yeah, no, no Googling. No Googling. Go ahead. Quick response. How many albums has Weezer put out? Well, can, I, would, can I raise the roof? Well, yeah, you, can, just, you, just raise, so, you can push it up. Push it okay. up while you're doing it. See, right, how, many, how many albums ha, has Weezer put out? Uh, 13. The, the answer is 15. Okay. It's a lot of records. Yeah. And, and here's why I'm bringing that up to kick off my wonder story. I've never seen Weezer live, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. I mean, think about all the bands that We've seen, I mean, we, we've gone to an, an absurd amount of concerts in our lives. I've never seen Weezer and I have a lot of opportunities to, and there's just a reason I haven't. And I think it's because deep down, I really am not all that interested. And I've had a real checkered past with this band. You know, I really did like the Blue Album. It was, I thought it was important. You got to remember, T, not only were they on the same label as Nirvana, but the Blue Album came out really the same basically year, year plus is in utero. And I think Weezer, part of the reason they struck with the zeitgeist was they were so different from the kind of, you know, darker idea of Nirvana and some of the other things going on in grunge. Weezer was really bright and the music was pretty upbeat. And I think that was a nice change of pace against their label mate who was now sort of a defunct band and Weezer certainly didn't pick up where Nirvana left off or anything like that, but they were a, an almost glaring opposite to them. And I think that's one of the things that made it work. I did like the Buddy Holly video. I still think it's incredibly clever, especially for its time. The song became unbelievably annoying, though. I mean, you talk about overplayed. It was not only overplayed on the radio, the, the, the video was in such heavy rotation at MTV you know, it was one of those videos you almost had it memorized. Like you knew what part was coming next, but you know, undeniably clever. And you got to give them that saying it. So I, you know, kind of like you rediscovered that song years and years later and love it. Right. But that was not really vibrant at the time. That was not connecting at the time. So I had this sort of brief relationship with the blue album. We'll talk more about Pinkerton, but when Pinkerton came out, I, I knew it was controversial. I just knew it was. I, you know, I knew that it was not exploding like the other one did. There were a lot of people that didn't like it. You, know, you didn't hear it in cars like you heard other albums, like you heard the Blue Album. The one thing I remember most about Pinkerton is, is our older brother, who's always prided himself on being very against the grain musically, loved it. And, and there's a few things that he's, you know, gotten wrong and a few things that he's gotten right when he tries to do that move where he wants to be countered or whatever is going on in the mainstream. But I remember right from the beginning, he, he said, this album's incredible, you know, best album of the year, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he really loved it. And that's one of the things that, that stood out. Since then, it's really just been a, a disappointing uh, effort after disappointing effort. Like I said, not to overdo the Fonzie references, but when Beverly Hills came out, I was done with Weezer and basically still am. You know, I've tried a couple of the albums that have come out since, and there's been opportunities to go see them live, and I just never have. I've never been interested enough to, to do that, which says a lot uh, because if you look at kind of the biggest bands that I've never seen, Weezer would be in the top five for sure. But it's been a pretty tough thing to stay into. 
because I just think their output has been has been so mediocre. And once they went Beverly Hills, I was never going back. So we didn't really touch on this in the nerdy deets, but um, I, I think I used the word once. But maybe before we get to the track by track, we should tackle this emo thing. Yeah, that's a good idea. I am glad you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> because and I'd love your thoughts on this. I, you know, this record has been touted as some sort of godfather of emo. I'm not sure I fully understand what emo is. I always thought emo was like dashboard confessionals, you know, and like all that stuff where you're like singing like really whiny songs about like the girl who dumped you in junior high school, which happened to me a lot. Um, and it's over sort of a, a, a rock approach that I guess in, See, there's like musical emo and then there's like lyrical, emotional emo. And I'm not really sure where it all falls because I've heard stuff that's like drop D, like rock off tempo stuff be considered emo. And they're not whining about the girl that dumped you in junior high school. And then I've heard like stuff that's like being played over like heavy acoustic strumming uh, and bongos where you are whining about the girl who dumped you in junior high school be considered emo. So I'm not really sure where that description lands. I'm sure the people that even created the description aren't sure, but how was this like considered important in that whole um, realm of things in your view? You know, the reality is to emo is it like all music classifications. It's, it's like the dumbest term ever. I mean, I can't even answer your question because it's such a stupid classification. You know, emo, like short for emotional, like, oh, now we're going to tag rock music as being emotional rock. Or I mean, it's just, it makes no sense. It, to me, it became a, a scene stir thing. It totally became a hipster. Like if a band wasn't super popular and had a little bit of an indie sound, yeah, okay, you're emo. And I think that calling a band emo had a lot more to do with their popularity than anything else. In fact, I'm surprised that that tag even is assigned to a record that came out in a major label that followed up a triple platinum album. But if you want to like truly see the origins of emo, it was not 1996. I mean, the first sunny day real estate album diary came out in 1994. If you want to sort of hear what people were calling emo in the most accurate way possible, listen to the first two sunny day albums. Right. And, and then you might have an idea, but in the NT it's, it's, it's like all classification terms. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, but know? but what is it about this album that gave it that designation? I mean, is it the the whininess? I would say the whininess. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. I think it has more to do with the lyrical content than the music itself. You know, uh, even though okay. this does have a little bit of an indie edge, at, certainly on the album tracks, I think it all comes down to the lyrics. And and without question, this is one of the whiniest albums of all time. I mean, no <laughs> doubt about it. So is emo oh, a lyrical genre or a musical genre, you think? I think it's both. I think that musically, it has to sound raw. It can't sound too produced. It can't sound too polished. Jagged guitars are kind of one of the ingredients, you know, thin drum sound. And then the tone of vocal has to be yearning. A trained vocalist is usually not going to sing emo. It has to be somebody who, who has a tone of the voice that's sort of desperate. And then, yes, lyrically, it's got to be pretty damn whiny if it's going to be emo. But in the end, it's bullshit. 
<laughs> right? I mean, it's it's just it's just a ridiculous classification. Yeah. Never, I didn't understand it in the nineties. I don't understand it now. <laughs> you know, but it's, but it's a great question because it is one of those things that's that's certainly assigned to Pinkerton. So let, you know, I think it's time to make Pinkerton our assignment and dive into track by track. This is going to be interesting to you. I cannot wait to hear some of your uh, feedback and thoughts on uh, a plethora of these tracks. Do you know so what, what it would means to have a plethora? Yeah. What, what would you say it is to have a plethora? <laughs> I'm still here. El Guapo. El Guapo. Well, let's go from El Guapo to El Scorcho. Yeah. By the way, by the way, it's a sweater. It's a sweater. Sweater song. <laughs> it's a sweater. It, it's see, a, it, all, it all ties together. It's a sweater. And El Guapo, El Scorcho. Right. It's what a, what a tie in. How did we get there? How did we get to three amigos? Dude? You know, it's like, it's like the Kevin Bacon game, you know, it just all finds a way. Doesn't it? Love it. Love it. Well, let's dive into, let's get into uh, the tracks on Pinkerton as we drop the needle. Young 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. Like we were all rushed into their record shops, purchased this probably on CD, went back to their respective homes, put it in, heard the first 10 seconds and went, huh? As they got into the opening track, tired of sex. And parents all over the world were saying, this is not the Buddy Holly band that you used to listen to. Musically, it's sort of a mess. And lyrically, it's all about like Rivers basically hating his new life and hating his new job, (laughs) which is a little tough to take when you're just sort of a sunny, optimistic kid wanting to hear, you know, the sweater song and Buddy Holly again. So it sure is different once it kicks off, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Messy is a good word. I mean, it's uh, my favorite part of the whole album probably is the end of the song when it cuts in half. Cause I just think that's pretty jammy, but um, yeah, listen, you're, you're getting, you're getting Pinkerton here right from the get go. And you're realizing to your point that it's something a little different SKD, something kind of different. And uh yeah, I suppose it begins appropriately. It really does reflect a guy who sort of hates his job. That's just that's that's what it sounds like, which is interesting when you're almost overnight one of the biggest rock stars in the world. But I mean, he's basically telling the world it's a little bit of a cry for help. You know, I I do compare it to yeah. Nirvana's in utero. You know, when you think about the way that that album opens with Serve the Serpents and that first line that Kurt says about Teenage Jenks has done me well, blah, blah, blah. Teenage really, Jenks has paid off well. Yeah. yeah. It's a very self-aware, interesting opening line. Well, this is almost Rivers basically saying like, I don't want this anymore. And, and again, at 16, you hear that and it's like, oh, really? Like, it's not as fun as, as it might seem. And he, he plays that role a lot on this album, but maybe, you know, maybe not quite as explicitly as he does on the opening track for sure. Pickerton continues with, to me, just the all and out jam of the album. This is a song that I've always loved. And that is the interestingly titled Get You. Get you. Get you. Get you. Get 
right. Now, this is sort of Rivers Cuomo at his best. I mean, that's pretty sweet. Get you, Rama. It's catchy. It's heavy. It's got these nice kind of angular rhythms to it. And it's, it's tight. So Tired of Sex was this loose kind of thing that developed. Get You, to me, feels like a fully formed, radio-ready song. Now, it never became a hit. It wasn't a single, but I think it should have been. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, you don't it's like fine. Get You? Oh, dude, I think it's a jam. Uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's a junior high talent show song a bit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> Wow, I'm really surprised. I thought I thought this was going to be one thing on this album we might find a way to connect on in terms of like, I mean, it, you got to like just the the rock power of it because yeah, this album I, I, does meander into some pretty, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I like the power of it. I like the drumming actually. Um, yeah, it is good drumming, Patrick Wilson. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's yeah, it's get you. I mean, it's it's all right. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Did you like Beverly Hills, Steve? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Well, we can agree on that. All right. Well, <laughs> Pinkerton continues to wind into track three with no other one. Now you get this like openness where now the band's not doing anything even close to commercial. I mean, the little guitar thing there at the end, Maestro is sort of, it's a little bit of a catchy line, but this, this song does not capitalize on any backbeat or anything like that. This is, this is clearly something, you know, quite different from to me, anything that was on the blue album. I can't think of anything on that record that compares to no other one. Yeah. I think it's really good. You know, I think this is where it gets to be, um, creatively different than before, right? So this is not being different for the sake of being different or, you know, let's just make this like sound crappy and messy just because, you know, we want to make a statement. This is a well thought through composition. Uh, you know, I like the, the sort of different, unique tempo from Weezer, which again, at this time, you know, was still unique for them to kind of pace it. Uh, at this uh, tempo. I really, I really like it. I think it's a good song. I think it's a good track three. And I think it's a moment on this record where you kind of say, okay, they were going in a, in a unique, thoughtful, creative direction rather than just being different for the sake of it. So yeah, I, I like no other one quite a bit. This album certainly cannot figure out what it wants to be in terms of, you know, the fun aspect of songwriting and then the sort of songwriting to tell the world how you feel about certain things in usually a negative light. It seems to each track has its own sort of vibe and those vibes are incredibly different. And already in the first three, you've jumped from sort of whiny, wah, me, wah, my life to this all in out rocker and then back into this really introspective thing. And then it goes right back the other way of the pendulum on track four with why bother. It's like a Beatles song, right? I mean, it truly is like a pure pop song. And again, I'm not saying it was aiming to be commercial or a hit, 
but you're back to much more of a pop sensibility here. So you, again, you're just ping pong. You're just going back and forth between kind of the more off the beaten path Weezer thing. This sounds like something that could have been a hit single on any of their albums from any aspect of their era. Yeah, it could definitely, it could have easily been on the blue album, you know? And uh, yeah, I, I think it's good. I think it's them kind of doing what they do a little bit, but, but again, in a different way, not completely formulaic, you know, but you know, the, the catchiness, the guitar, I, I do like some of the guitar tones on this record when it's tight. I like it, you know, when it's kind of got that really kind of heavy overdrive thing going on. Um, sometimes it gets a little messy and sloppy and you get too many guitar layers at that gain level and it just sounds like overkill. But yeah, I think I think this run right here of No Other One and Why Bother is probably the high point of the record. So, you know, closing out uh, side A, even though to your point, this wasn't really a vinyl thing until uh, until later. But but that that sort of. um you know, early to midpoint of the record of these two songs back to back, I think is kind of a high point. Side A officially closes with Across the Sea. Mentioned it earlier, T, but you can hear the production differences already on side one. You know, some of these songs are really souped up like a, like a Cadillac in terms of mastering and kind of ready for mass production across the sea is one that sounds very, very raw. You know, it sounds like something that almost would be more of like an outtake and some of that's the instrumentation and the composition, but I don't think there's any doubt that the, the songs that were intended to be singles were painted that way with that brush. And the other stuff was meant to be very, very rustic. And, and not resemble anything with a lot of polish at all, which might sort of exhibit where Rivers was at at the time. I don't think he cared too much about being as famous as he was previously with this album. But Across the Sea to me is like one of those very, very kind of almost underground rock sounding songs. Yeah, I like on Pinkerton when they get into the uh, keyboard stuff. Now, they would eventually overdo that, of course. But, you know, at this time where they were kind of combining this hard-edged, understated, minimalist rock sound with some keyboard layers, I thought was really cool. And Matt Sharp probably had a lot to do with that, seeing that he took that sound and took those elements and really uh, implemented them into a lot of the, the, the rentals projects, you know, which I think is, is one of the cool, charming things about that, that outfit. Uh, Across the Sea has some nice moments uh, of that. And there are a couple of those that pop up throughout the album. So yeah, I think the song's pretty good. And um, I don't love the way the album starts, but I think side A rounds out pretty nicely. It's a great call on the synth to you that, that mini Moog sound is definitely a key part of the album. If it's not a true mini Moog, it's one that certainly sounds like it. They do pepper the songs nicely with some of this stuff. And I remember a little bit of that on Blue Elm, but that certainly took off more on Pinkerton. I think that becomes a nice addition to their sound and it does thicken it out. A little bit, especially considering that some of these songs are are rather thin. Flip the record over and side two begins with probably a sarcastic take on the good life. So Rivers now 
basically saying I could still write a hook, guys. And, the, the, you know, the time I got back, that is definitely a clear hook. And dun, 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 dun. I mean, that, that's about as simple as it gets. So get back to that simple Weezer power pop thing. Yep. I mean, it's it's a little refreshing on the record when you hear them have a little bit of fun, whether it's musically or there's not a lot of fun lyrically on this one, but but musically, there's some fun. I think uh, The Good Life is a, a good example that it is tongue in cheeky. You get this bouncy kind of uh, riff and, and whatnot going along with this lyric that, you know, is a little bit sarcastic and a little bit sort of dark if you really dig into it about kind of where uh, Rivers was at at this time. So yeah, it's, it's a nice, uh, it's a, it's a very, uh, very prototypical Pinkerton song, you know, in that way where you're combining a lot of different moods and a lot of different angles and approaches and fitting it all into one. And I think it's the longest song on the record or, or one of the longer ones. There's just a couple that exceed four minutes and that's one of them. So um, yeah, it's all right. Dude, why does he hate his new job so much? I mean, Rivers, you don't have it that bad. He's just, he's like so clamoring for his previous life when he was just sort of a nobody or at least like a student at Harvard or whatever he was doing. I mean, it's like, dude, like it's not that bad. Chill out. Yeah. Like I, I remember I was, I was working in New York city one summer and uh, we had to wear suits to work. And I remember being on the subway, like crammed with people. It was like 110 degrees down there in the station. And I was like, not just sweating through my uh, shirt, but I was also finding a way to sweat through my jacket. Um, you know, and, and this is at like seven 30 in the morning. And that's a time where you kind of hate your job. Um, yeah. Having to tour around the world and play songs and, you know, I'm sure it's not all glamorous as we've talked about on the old podcast here many times, but to be this pissed off about your, um, you know, source of income and, and employment structure, um, comes off a little whiny i think we can agree i think it, it definitely resembles and i don't know his exact age when the album was made but he had to be in his early to mid 20s it it does resemble i, I wonder if he had a do-over if he'd go back and, yeah. and be this sort of angsty about basically achieving the thing that all of us who are listening wanted you know i mean that was what was always a little bit hard to take about pinkerton was like dude, if you don't want it so bad, then don't make a second album, you know, like go yeah. back to doing whatever you did before. And to your point, kind of tough. And I think one of the things Pinkerton did was it, it did inherently isolate a certain amount of the audience that was basically saying like, dude, you should see my life. If you think yours is so bad, you know? And, <laughs> and I, I think that's one of the, the interesting aspects of the legacy is that maybe in lots of time, people could go back and say, Oh, well, that's just him being, you know, at that phase of his life. But at the time there was, there must've been a feeling of dude, if it's that bad, then just shut up, you know? And, and yeah, it, being a rock star is not as easy as everyone says, but it's also not, you know, a quarter as challenging as a lot of the jobs and the, a lot of the things that other people are going through or so. You know? yeah, and, it, and it's like a lot of the nineties stuff we've done here. It's, it's, you know, part of it is cool and nostalgic and takes you back to a time. And part of it reminds you of, you know, how malcontent a lot of things were around that time. You know, I mean, there, there was just this element of, you know, I want this and then you get it and it's like, well, I'm not sure I want that anymore. I want this instead. And it, you know, all this sort of zigzagging artistically and, 
you know, there was a lot of, there seemed to be a lot of pressure. I mean, I guess for better or for worse now, things are so commercial and so produced. It's like nobody really cares about (laughs) doing things for artistic yet lucrative benefit in music. And most of that has really sacrificed a lot of the quality, but at least there's sort of an unapologetic nature to, Hey, I'm doing this for a living. And, and some of that is weirdly and unfortunately refreshing when you go back to this time where that it became so uncool to be commercial. Um, but you know, that's all part of what's fun about revisiting these deals is that, you know, it takes you back to a time where things were a bit different and have shifted for better or for worse um, in different directions. But yeah, it's also been fun to watch all these people grow up. I mean, now Rivers is a grown up adult with a family and, you know, and is <laughs> clearly using music as a way to continue to make a living more so than to, uh, you know, display his, uh, emotional state at present, right? I think that's pretty evident. And it's and it's always a little bit fun to watch these guys grow up. I've mentioned the Foo Fighters documentary where you see like Dave Grohl like throwing his kids around in their giant pool at their giant mansion. You know, and you just realize he's not the uh you know the 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 guy who's sitting there having to nod along with all of Kurt Cobain's uh ramblings about uh about the the music spectrum, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good example of that. And it'd be interesting. I'm sure Rivers has spoken about it before, but I'm sure there are some self cringe moments from his standpoint. See, do you know what El Scorcho translates into? Um, the, the, the scorcher, the scorcher, the scorching one. The answer is the Scorcho. It's not oh. a Spanish word. It's a fake. See, I, was, I was close. You were very close. Track seven, El Scorcho. Stop listening to Chocho Sam. Fall in love all over again. Even from the clip, can't you hear the difference in mastering? This is a single. This was made to be a single. The drum sound is a lot louder. It's more thunderous. The guitars are up front. The vocals are up front in the mix, and there's a lot of vocal harmonies. Yeah. El Scorcho is one of the designed singles from Pinkerton. Because remember, while this album is representing something very non-commercial in its sort of persona, they're still on a major label. There's still a band who's following up an album that sold 3 million copies plus. So El Scorcho is the first example so far of a true single. Sounds like a single was not a hit at all. I don't ever remember hearing this song on the radio team. No, I, I don't either. I mean, this kind of reminds me of at least, you know, per its intent, uh, you know, the, we talked about heart shaped box and all apologies on in utero that where Scott lit came in and took over the production to, to give it a thicker sound and prepare those songs for commercialism, uh, to the chagrin of Albini and probably the guys. Uh, but yeah, I think probably a similar approach here. You make great points there on the mastering and on the levels and those type of things that really at least tried to design this as a single. I think it's just you know, I, I don't know that it's a great song, which is probably why it failed to catch on as a commercial single. Uh, but isn't but so- that what's interesting to you is like they passed up obvious singles. I mean, we've already been through at least two of them where they would the, just the catchiness of them alone. 
And they instead opted for this draggy, slow tempo song. Now, I like El Scorcho, but this is not a single. This is not a hit single by any means. Yeah, I, yeah, agreed. And, and, you know, I think oftentimes Weezer at this point was, was trying to change their own narrative. But in some cases, I think they were also trying to change the, the overall musical and commercial narrative out there. And probably trying to lead with a single like this was part of it. It's kind of like, well, of course we could put, you know, um, get you out there. But, you know, we want to put something out there and prepare something that's a little bit different to kind of go along with this whole idea of what Pinkerton's trying to do. So, yeah, I, I think they were trying to do a lot of things. The ambition was certainly here um, in El Scorcho being the single and being the produced single and, and not really performing that well, I think is a bit symbolic of the overall effort here where they were really trying to not just make a statement uh, artistically, but make waves artistically and affect the environment for their band's future and for kind of for music's commercial future. And, you know, I'm not sure if it nailed it completely in all those regards, which is in many ways where you saw that initial sort of backlash that you mentioned from the onset. But it could be one of the reasons we're still talking about Weezer today. You do wonder if they would have just come out with Blue Album Jr., what that would have looked like, you know, maybe they would have had a, a better time at that moment with that second album. But Pickerton to me is one of the good examples of why we're still even thinking or talking about Weezer. I think Pickerton plays a role in that. The second single off Pinkerton and equally uncommercial as a single is track eight pink triangle. Great recipe for success in 1996 is put the word lesbian in your second single. I mean, once again, they're, they're not even, they're not even trying. I, I even wonder if the singles are just sort of a middle finger to the industry or whatever they're trying to get across here. Cause this, this, the only, the only single that was less likely to be a hit than El Scorcho is pink triangle. Yeah. I mean, the, the singles piece of this whole assessment is interesting because Obviously, there really weren't any that, you know, jumped out at you. So interesting to see what they produced to be one and what they positioned to be one. And yeah, I, I don't think it's I think even now you listen to it and it's not terribly surprising that it really didn't catch on. And it's not because, you know, of what they say in it is just because not that great of a song. The thing, too, T, is we, you know, we've done a lot of praising of sequencing on this podcast. This is an album that, in my opinion, is very poorly sequenced. And it's yeah. sequenced to send a message. Because if you think about it, the three singles are tracks six, seven, and eight. This is CD times. This isn't vinyl times. It's weird enough that three singles would all be on the second side of the vinyl. If that's what Rivers was going for, fine. But just in the CD realm, you would never bury singles in the second half of the CD. You know, you would always hope that it'd be in the first four tracks. And that was not the case at all here. And aside from get you being the second track, I, I, I can't think of an album that's sequenced more poorly in terms of whatever journey you're trying to take the listener on. We'll, and we'll get to the, the, the last two tracks are a good example of the really poor sequencing. Cause the, you know, I think it's the low points of the album, but you know, it's, it, we've done a lot of praising of sequencing. We, we got to call it when it's not good. And I don't think this album is sequenced well at all. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Just yet another area where I think they're trying to be different for the sake of being different. There are some parallels between this and Kid A. You know, when we did the Kid A episode of uh, certain things, cool, creative, artistic, certain things like, okay, guys, like we get that you're trying to be a little bit unorthodox here and a lot. We hear you loud and clear, you know, now, now go put some good songs on it. (laughs) Well, good songs uh, don't really come here at the end of the album. Uh, Track nine, as we wind toward a close is falling for you. I think this song's terrible. It's there's nothing imaginative about it whatsoever. It almost sounds like Weezer making a parody of Weezer in a way. And the the vocal lines are really dissonant and I don't get it. And yeah, this song doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. I would agree. They're right at the end where it goes into kind of halftime, you know, crashing the ride symbol and the little guitar bit, you know, is okay. But uh, yeah. It's the last, you know, rock song on the record and uh, certainly not, not, not triumphant. And uh, that was probably, again, another thing that was intentional. Closing track. The album's almost over before you know it. And it concludes with Butterfly. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know, Nub. I think he's sorry. What do you think? I think he's sorry. I think he's sorry. If I had to guess. I think he's sorry for concluding the album on such a crappy note. (laughs) The guy, do you think that Rivers wanted this album to be successful? Or do you think deep down he wanted it to tank a little bit? Uh, probably wanted it to tank a little bit. I, you know, he, he seemed to be in such a odd place. Um, such a uh, overly self-conscious place um, that he probably just didn't care, you know? So I don't know. I, the, you know, like you said, the, 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 the revisits and uh, oops, sorry, we're going to review that again on this album have really been interesting, you know, cause I think it, it became one of these records where it's like, it became cool to understand it and it became cool to be like, Oh, you don't get what they were doing on Pinkerton. Like, you know, you're whatever. And, (laughs) and it's always kind of funny then when that happens, but yeah, if you're looking at just pure content and pure intention across the board, it seemed like they were more in rivers himself was probably more focused on, um, what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to land rather than how it was received. I think that's pretty evident. All right. Well, let's get into our sort of final assessment here in episode 44. T, does Pickerton matter? Yeah, I, I think it does from the standpoint of a band that's blatantly saying, you know, we don't have to be formulaic. And, and even early in our career, we're thinking about longevity. Um, I thought you made a good point that when you think about Weezer and their ability to kind of be a multi-decade operation, 
without Pinkerton, that that actually maybe in hindsight wouldn't have been as easy or productive. So I do think it mattered to the band. I think it mattered for people to see that, you know, there are groups out there that aren't just willing to kind of go with uh, the the calculated formula that their record company would prefer. Um, and that in in some ways is healthy. That in some ways we could use more of today, you know. You know, I keep waiting for like Maroon Five to come out with like a rock record like they used to do, and they're never gonna. Yeah, keep waiting. Yeah, they're just—it's not going to happen. There's too much tied up, too many stakeholders, too many influencers. You know, too much of a think tank when it comes to producers and collaborators and all those things now for that to happen. So it is—it is, it is um, heartwarming, whether you like the record or not. To uh, kind of go back and understand that there was a time where people could do this, even as early as their second record, they could come out and extend a little bit of a middle finger. And yeah, some of that's annoying. And some of that's, you know, you know, go wine to somebody else rivers, but some of that we could use more of today, you know? And so for that, I think it was bold. And for that, I think that it matters quite a bit. How about you? I think it's uh, an album that, and there's a few of these, that is more intriguing than it is good. And I think the intrigue takes it a long way. And you got to give it that. I think you nailed it perfectly. I think that was all well said to you. But I, I love the intrigue of the album. I just don't think it's as good as the retrospective reviews say it is. Now, I think that if you were able to go back in time and have people actually sort of thoughtfully review this, the reviews should probably be somewhere in the middle of the slamming that it took in 96 and now the you know, absolute slobbering that it gets nowadays from things like Rolling Stone. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle just in terms of quality. But in terms of intrigue, I think it's a five-star album. I love the story behind it. And I think that, to your very good point, it's an important example of something that probably will never happen again. You know, A band will never get that monumental rise so quickly and then make a decision, a rather conscious, seemingly, decision to cut back and play the long game. And you got to respect them for that, for sure. As complicated as Rivers Cuomo is, and as the, the moments of lack of foresight that are within Pinkerton, one of the things that you could say he was really forward-thinking on was that concept of playing the long game um, sort of more of a David Bowie approach of like, don't do everything in one album. Don't do everything in one shot, have the willingness to reinvent yourself. And that's a cool thing. You got to respect that for sure. Yep. All right. Well, let's see the level of respect as we get into the final cut T is Pinkerton on the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or are you taking it to the for sale bin T where's Pinkerton for you? Well, I do respect it. I do think it's important. You made great points as well, but it's going in the for sale bin for me. It's just not good enough. I mean, it's not a record that I think, you know, you have to play people to teach them about Weezer. I don't think it's a record with a lot of memorable moments. You know, I think it's sludgy. I think it's messy. Um, And sometimes that can be good. In this case, I don't think it's particularly good. I think they could have capitalized on some layers and things that wouldn't have jeopardized the effort or jeopardized it artistically or taken it too much in the blue album direction, but could have continued to kind of fine tune it into something that was thoughtful. Sometimes I don't think I'm listening to something that's terribly thoughtful. You know, it's kind of like, let's just throw this out there. And I think some of the nostalgic reviews again became, you know, this sort of do you get it or do you not get it thing. And 
you know, I'll stand up and say, I still don't get it. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So uh, what do you got? I'm interested in, in your take, uh, Nubbles. Well, we got to let our, you know, listener, Sean from Celine Music and Vinyl know a copy Pinkerton might be on the way, buddy. That's right. right? That's Toph right. might be bringing his in. So be ready That's for right. it. I've got a collecting dust. Some of that very admittedly so might be that I just don't want to have a conversation with some hipster that's in my basement about why I don't own Pinkerton, right? There is something about this album that feels like you need to own it because it does tell an important story of the 90s. So I think owning it is, is important. Listening to it top to bottom regularly ain't happening. I think half of it's really, really strong. I think Get You, El Scorcho, you know, a couple of the poppier stuff, uh, songs on the first side, I think are, are really strong and, and can resonate and continue to be important. Half of the album is pretty rough. And I, I think you make a great point. It sounds rushed because I, I think it was a bit rushed. I think it was something that was not well thought through in terms of the actual songs. I think what was more thought through was the statement that was trying to be made. And the statement's great, but the record is not. So I've got it. I've got it collecting dust, few strong moments. Many not strong moments for sure. Well, as T preps his uh, trip to the record store to take uh, Pinkerton in to sell it, let's figure out a few songs that might be ringing in his head while he's making this trip as we conclude episode 44 with In Your Head. Whoa, Dolores. Whoa, Dolores. Cranberries made a good second album, didn't they? <laughs> See, three songs that are ringing in your head. What's up? Very good. Uh, the first one is, uh, and you know, we're getting into summertime here. So I'm starting to think about the summer, you know, chucking bags in the front yard with a six pack of something frothy on the playlist there. Don't even uh, pretend that it's not a six pack of white claw. Come on, buddy. You're on the train listen, now. You've gotten me. You've gotten me on the white cloth thing a bit. I, I'm something I would have scoffed at six months ago. I think I actually did. Um, oh, many, many times. I am now. I'm getting there. You're man. a true believer. You are I'm getting there. Yeah. A truly believer. You will. Uh, I'm going with a, a little Alabama doing a little Dixieland delight. Great song. And I don't want to hear any of your snide comments about country music. Okay. Um, second is from that London outfit. This, uh, I guess it was, I don't know, a side project or an aftermath project for Mick Jones. That being big audio dynamite. Most people think of Rush. Most people think of the globe. They got another great song called E equals MC squared. That was a single for them. Big audio dynamite. That's some good stuff. And the third, we're going to go with a little Def Jam Records. Domino. Love Domino. Doing Sweet Potato Pie. One of my favorite <laughs> yeah. rap songs of all time. So It really uh, is summertime is, coming. Those are three T summer songs, I would say. They sure are, buddy. What do you got? I have a, uh, a cover of The Police's King of Pain by a band that just announced that they're getting back together. And I'm super excited about it. And that is Mudvayne. They did a B-side cover of King of Pain that is very, very good. It's kind of a metal version of it. Love it. That's cool. Okay. Second would be Kiss That Frog by Peter Gabriel off the Us album. Very underrated album from the 90s. 
from Peter Gabriel. And last, speaking of summer songs, you know, kind of break out more of the jam band stuff uh, during the summer. And OAR, which is a band that I, I don't think you and I both love, but Dari Mia is one of their best songs. It might be like their only great song. And I would like to bust that one out a lot during the summer. It's just a good kind of outdoor hanging out, having some white claw type of track. So that is what is uh, in my head to you. Nice. Any songs from Pickerton going to be ringing in your head or are you kind of done with it? You already take it to the for sale, Ben. Uh, butterfly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so catchy. Oh, it's so good. It's just so hey, good. A, he's a 90s, a 90s classic. Make no mistake, T. Rivers is very, very sorry. Well, uh, he should be. We're not sorry for episode 44, and we're, we're not sorry, but super grateful for all of you who tune into the podcast and support us. Leave us feedback, leave some comments, make a request, and stay engaged with us on our Twitter and our Facebook and uh, all the other outlets, T. We're all over the place. Two Toons in the album really sweeping the nation, isn't it? Well, we're trying. Great pick. This is a... Uh really interesting album to discuss i agree with everything you said about its uh importance whether you liked it or not and uh enjoyed discussing this sophomore record from these guys so nice pick our sophomore record will be done sometime <laughs> we're, we're still plugging away at it we, we will get there t uh we're targeting 2031 i think yes exactly exactly and we'll probably have to push that back Well, thanks everybody for tuning in and we will see you for episode 45 here on Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.